92nd Street Y Online Media is made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. This program, Changing New York City Neighborhoods, What's on the Horizon and What Can We Expect, features a discussion with real estate analyst Jonathan Miller with developers Michael Stern, Charlie Bendit, David Kramer, and Susie Yu. It was recorded on February 4th, 2017, before a live audience at New York's 92nd Street Y. Uh, thank you all for uh, coming. This is a full house. It's, it's uh, exciting. Uh, uh, we're going to get a lot of insight from our guests, uh, three very prominent uh, developers in New York. Um, since we're limited for time and each of their resumes would take about, I don't know, an hour, um, I thought I'd just introduce the name of their company and, and their bios are all uh, readily available to all of you. So first we have, um, I want to say, well, I'm going to stand over here. I feel like that's not going to be a problem, is it? There's, uh, um, um, I wanted to introduce David Kramer of the Hudson Companies, uh, who, uh, who I have long followed, and we're going to talk about Manhattan origins and Brooklyn. Also, uh, Charlie Bendit with Taganic Investment Partners, who uh, has uh, something quite large going on with Essex Crossing. And Michael Stern with JDS Development, who uh, builds tall stuff. So, uh, so uh, one, of the, one of the things that I find in um, the development community, and this is all about changing neighborhoods, and a lot of it is about anticipating the future. And I think um, that there is a lack of understanding or appreciation for how long the, the sort of uh, scale, in terms of scale, how much time is spent before a pro you actually see the project come out of the ground. And a lot of that is you're, the developers are essentially gambling as uh, I, don't, I don't play, I don't know how to, I don't play hockey, I don't know how to skate, but as Wayne Gretzky once said, the NHL Hall of Famer, he anticipates where the puck is gonna be. And I think a lot of development is all about anticipating where the next neighborhood or trend is going to be and they're placing sort of a high stakes bet on that. So um, the first I thought I'd uh, start with, uh, let's see, I guess I'll start with David with, um, uh, you know, you started in Manhattan and um, I, I wanna say that you've developed, it feels like every neighborhood in Brooklyn now, you, I think you said you're riding the Brooklyn wave. What does that mean? In, in other words, you're in Manhattan, you're looking at Brooklyn, what was it about Brooklyn um, besides, you know, the, I mean, simple opportunity, but what, what is it about Brooklyn? Why is it so wildly successful at this point? Well, I'd like to give a sophisticated answer, but I think the answer is we were cheap. And, uh, you, you know, when you're looking at developing an apartment building in New York City, uh, you have a lot of different choices and a lot of different risk profiles. You can find uh, the best, most primo neighborhood and spend a lot of money outbidding purchasers to buy a site and hope that in three or four years that apartment building is going to be the craziest, most expensive, most wildly successful project. And a lot of companies do that and can be wildly successful. And that is not Hudson's risk reward um, um, uh, our pulse. Uh, mm -hmm. Our DNA is more. We like finding deals. We like finding neighborhoods where uh, we're a bit of a contrarian, or maybe not a contrarian, maybe we're just looking for the uh, Wayne Gretzky's puck before others. And um, if you can find a neighborhood where, where you look at the dynamics and say, oh, this makes sense. This makes sense to me. This neighborhood's going to get a, let, a lot better in the next three or four years. We were the first 
uh, real project in the meatpacking district on 13th and Hudson in the late 90s. Don't we call that MIPA is now? It, is that the well, I'm, I, I'm, I'm dating myself. Meatpacking is now MIPA, but at the time we were like, we're West Village because right. <laughs> meatpacking meat was a bad name. There was still like the brine lines um, right. in the buildings. There were still transvestite prostitutes on 13th Street. Right. And we looked at it and said... Um, that wasn't in your brochures. We love transvestite, you know, the buyers want transvestite prostitutes. That is, that's I one of the amenities. It. Um, no, we saw it and we said, you know, this is a great location right. and uh, the market's not there yet. And that, that's sort of been our Brooklyn formula. If we're, if we're comfortable that a neighborhood is safe, mm -hmm. and um, recent studies done by the Furman Center on Gentrification, right. show NYU. That the, um, NYU Furman, um, show that the number one correlation with gentrification is, uh, is safety and drop in crime. So if we feel that as a threshold issue, it's a safe neighborhood, and then it's near parks, it's near transit, it's near some retail. A lot of our neighborhoods, the retail is the most mediocre or the thinnest. It's, it doesn't look like Lexington Avenue. But we, but we like to say there are some green shoots. And so there's the beginning of some retail. We're doing a lot of projects right now in a neighborhood called Prospect Lefferts Gardens. You know, growing up, I never heard of that neighborhood. Six years ago, I never heard of that neighborhood. And it's basically the other side of Prospect Park from Park Slope. Mm -hmm. um, and it's served by the queue. And it has uh, landmark historic districts with very valuable homes. But there had never been rental stock. So that's an example of something we, we've done, is we're looking out for the next Brooklyn subway station beyond where everybody else already is. So we were in Dumbo, then everybody's in Dumbo when we're moving to Gowanus, and when everybody gets to Gowanus, uh, we go to Prospect Lefferts Gardens. It's that kind of approach that we've um, tried, as long as we feel like this is a neighborhood where four years from now, I can, I can envision making the, closing the deal with a prospective tenant. I can say, you know, that's where you're gonna get your dry cleaning, that's where you're gonna um, get on your subway, and, um, and, and you, are less, you have a less expensive rent or purchase price than three subway lines in. So it's, it's fair to say, I mean, one of the biggest considerations is really access to transportation uh, and uh, going just outside the, the sort of the established area to basically, you know, make, uh, create something new. Right, I mean, it's a perfect example. We've turned down some projects in Astoria where it's a one mile walk to the subway. Right. So, you know, there's only so much you can ask people to do or so much you can ask people to do and hope to get great rents. Yeah. And so if we're going to be in the outer boroughs, we want to be right near, um, right right. near a subway stop. Right. Uh, you can walk a long way to the subway stop if you are on the High Line or in the far west village. Um, but you can't ask people to walk a mile in Astoria and you know, hope to command great rents. That's our position. Interesting. Uh, Charlie, uh, you have, uh, I, I, just to give the scale of sort of the time frame of preparation, one of your current obsessions, I believe, is the whole Essex Crossing development and uh, you're launching your, your first projects now. What, give us a sense of the time frame of that um, in terms of, uh, what, where, how you thought about it, where, where the idea came from, and then sort of the window of opportunity that you saw. Well, the idea for it was pretty simple. We responded to a, a city RFP. Um, <laughs> the, so uh, you actually had bid on it too, didn't you? We did not bid on it. We thought about it. We're like, oh, RFPs are such we a... Were we know, like, right? how can you compare it to Conic? Right, right, right. right. <laughs> um, Right, so, I thought we were going to be true. We'll go to Prospect Lefferts Gardens where. 
the competition's last. By the way, you know, we all look like geniuses looking, looking, looking back. But it, right. you know, it's it's. Price. Well, that was the requirement was, to be on the you know, panel. It looked, you have it looked to be cheap, a so we bought it, and we just happened to be <laughs> happened to be lucky. When we did 111 Eighth Avenue, by the way, there were transvestite hookers on Ninth Avenue and Fifteenth Street, and we brought our investor by to look at, it, and he goes, "Are you guys kidding me? Are you out of your minds? Don't worry, it's cheap." And, uh, <laughs> and uh, right. it, 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 worked out, it worked out okay. But th those transvestites are now Google employees right. at 111 on 8th Avenue. And, and doing very well, I might add. I feel like I'm losing control. Uh, so, uh, Charlie, so, if you could okay. kind of so, get back to the topic. So anyway, uh, for, for those of you that I'll give you a, a, a two-second background on, on Essex Crossing. These are nine sites uh, that had been vacant since the 19, early 1960s, and they were part of the redevelopment of the Lower East Side. The Lower East Side in the 30s, 40s, and even before were all tenement houses, and they were a hazard, and uh, the city condemned them, tore them all down, um, and then started building the apartment buildings that you see along Grand Street, that you see um, west of the FDR, south of uh, Delancey Street. But there were nine sites that that didn't get developed, and they didn't get developed because the communities around there could never agree on what to build. A number of developers tried to get the communities to agree, but they couldn't. And the Bloomberg administration spent five years bringing the communities together to agree on what should be built. And they went from 100% affordable for low income to no affordability. So they had to bring all of these groups together to agree on what should be built there. Once they agreed on what should be built, they then went through a process to rezone it, to allow it to happen, and then the city went out with an RFP in February of 2013. We joined forces with two other developers, L&M Development Partners and BFC Partners, um, to pursue this, um, this RFP. We spent a million dollars on the response to the RFP. And the reason wow. we never spent any, never pursued these because we said, my gosh, the, the amount of time, the amount of money that you have to spend, and maybe you'll win. You know, there's too many other things to do, but we were convinced by two things. One, uh, we had two good partners, and, and two, we felt that if we could win this, it was, it, this was like a capstone project in our careers. So uh, we pursued it, um, and um, I, I was telling Jonathan the story, a woman by the name of Miriam Harris was leading the effort on behalf of EDC, and um, when we made our presentation, because they bring in everybody in for an interview, uh, we're sitting there and I said, look, this is, we work all of our lives for a project like this, and it would give me great pleasure to win it because I'm gonna be 60 years old on September 13th. It would be really great if we could win this. It would be a great birthday present. So she called me up on my birthday and she said, look, I can't really tell you anything. I'm not supposed to say anything, but tomorrow you're gonna be awarded this project. So, so it was, uh, it was, uh, it was probably one of the best birthday presents I ever got. Yeah, but my birthday presents aren't to, usually that large. By the way, <laughs> yet to be determined. Right. Um, Here's the secret. His birthday is not September 13th. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I never thought of that. My wife um, is here. She can attest to that. So, so anyway, I'll, make, I'll, I'll get to the point. The point is that we, we were awarded the project on September 13th, and uh, in, in 2013, rather, our first buildings will come online in December of 2017, and the project won't be done until 2022. So it's nine buildings, it's a, a million square feet of residential and 900,000 feet of commercial. So that's, that's a long lead time from the minute you sat down for the RFP, wait for it to return, 
and then put the project together and then start building and then finish it up and, and sell it. A lot can go right and a lot, a lot can, can go, go wrong. wrong. Yeah, but it was on your birthday. Uh, Michael, uh, you've uh, you really, I, I just remember, uh, uh, you sort of broke the mold with uh, your, uh, your development on West 18th Street, um, just spectacular. And uh, one of the things that I love about that project is um, you, when you're up high, the views are spectacular, but it's not the tallest building you know, in the land, so to speak. And you did that, but now you're, you're looking a lot towards Brooklyn and besides your West 57th Street, we could talk about. I'm just wondering, you know, um, I was in China last fall and the year before, and when I was walking around Shanghai, at least twice a day, I saw someone with a Brooklyn t-shirt on. You know, it's like this global brand. And, and I'm just wondering what, I mean, he said that he went to Brooklyn because it was cheap. Uh, is that the same, like, development opportunity thinking? I'm just curious. A little bit different. I mean, think for us, um, we went to Brooklyn because we thought it was ready, um, which we give credit to the pioneers who came before us because a lot of people did a lot of work in Brooklyn uh, in terms of the 2004 rezoning and a lot of buildings that got built. Some of the buildings were a little mediocre in their design inspiration, but it brought a critical mass. Um, and we thought that downtown Brooklyn, we're building a building at Nine DeKalb, which will be the tallest building in Brooklyn. And it's really, we think, Brooklyn's first iconic building that's really a game changer for the skyline. Uh, a building that's worthy of any city. It's not a second-class building for, for a second-class borough. It's a first-class mm -hmm. building. And we think that Brooklyn wasn't quite ready. The economics didn't make sense uh, on various levels. But we think Brooklyn can now support rents that could build a building with that kind of hard costs, which is something we need to be disciplined about. But that wasn't true five or six years ago. You could ago. even say that there are people now on the rental market that are priced out of Brooklyn that are moving to the Upper East Side, right, to, yeah. for for more affordable the rents Upper East with the same is, services. Is a bargain now, actually. Right, right, interesting. But when you thought of the, the that tall structure, how far in advance, um, I want to make the observation that you still have hair, so I don't know if that, like, Temporary. like if there's a correlation, it's an inside joke, <laughs> sorry. When he's, more, when he's more successful, he can, he can come back to the Y in another panel. It's the key to success, right? So I'll say a couple of things. Uh, first of all, um, all these projects take a very long time. They have a long gestation period. So our Brooklyn Tower, we bought the first piece for that assemblage three years ago. Okay. We had to work through tenancy issues with two different government agencies. We had the Coast Guard, which is fine to deal with, but it takes six months for them to answer a call or return any correspondence. And we had the MTA. So between those two tenants, it took us quite a lot, lot of time to clear that out. And then we had a discretionary landmarks process. So we were proposing to build a building that's over 1,000 feet tall on one of the most important individual landmarks in Brooklyn. Landmarks get sensitive about super tall towers on their sites. Um, so we had a, a very iterative community process. That took about a year. And so all in, and the project from start to finish will be about seven years. Right. And that's not even on the long side of some of the projects we're working on. Right. So it takes, takes a really long so time. So we're talking, you know, a seven to 12, seven to 13 year would yeah. not be an unusual range for uh, Yes. And actually, that one 
the, I, cr I, I think it's actually a credit that that's only going to take seven years because we got through landmarks very quickly and we had unanimous support at the community board for that building. We had unanimous support at landmarks and it went very quickly. Unlike some other neighborhoods like the Lower East Side slash Chinatown, which is the toughest community board, the toughest neighborhood with the most diverse set of voices um, that really slow the process down. You know, it's not a commentary on whether it's good or bad, but you know, there's a reason that that Essex Crossing site sat there for as many years as it did. That wouldn't happen in any other neighborhood. That neighborhood is really tough to navigate. We're doing a project now on Cherry Street, which is a large rental tower. Yes. And we're dealing with that same community board, and um, there's quite a, quite a process to get it done. But, it, but it'll happen. So I think patience is a virtue in, in theory. So I, I aspire to be a developer, apparently. Um, not quite ready. Um, so, so, so now you look at that. Now, now you look at Brooklyn. Does that mean, you know, I have this sort of trite saying about Queens, as I was saying, Queens was the new Brooklyn, right? And then we saw this rental development in the South Bronx, and it's like, well, the South, or the Bronx is the new Queens, right? And then, like, you know, and now we're having this sort of suburban explosion as well. So everything seems to be pushing outward in this search for well, development sites that make sense. Well, that, the issue is if you look at the bid-ask spread on land in Manhattan, it's massive. There's nothing trading. and they really Explain been, what that means, bid-ask, to the, the audience. The, the price that sellers want for their land in Manhattan is so far from the price any buyer is willing to pay for land right now with the risk around construction financing. Which that is there aren't tight. sales occurring. Yeah, there are no sales occurring. I mean, you're the king of data, I don't know, but you know, name me a big development site over 200,000 square feet that's traded in Manhattan in the last six months. I can't think of any. Right. Um, it's just a completely quiet market. There are still some trades going on in the outer boroughs. There's a lot of discussion about the amount of supply, rental supply particularly, that's being created, say, in downtown Brooklyn, but the truth is there's no supply being created anywhere else other than Long Island City. Those are the only two neighborhoods. So. Right. Good. I mean, I would say Brooklyn is now incredibly expensive. Uh, you know, when it was cheap, you know, that was then. And is that when you say expensive in relationship to developing rental versus condo or just in general? Either? I would say land prices now make it hard to develop rental. And I would say that if you just look at the actual rents, that they're, they're very high and that, uh, I mean, as an example, we just opened a building this past uh, fall called the Park Line on Flatbush Avenue overlooking Prospect Park and our one bedrooms get around $2,600 a month. Now, and I think when we started, we thought like, you know, if we get 1,800 a month, we'll be lucky. And so $2,600 is very expensive for a one bedroom. Not everybody in the city right. you know, can afford $2,600. And so the question we ask ourselves then is, if Prospect Leverage Gardens, one bedroom in a new building is 2,600, that means that the next guy developing after us is going to assume that that one bedroom is gonna get 2,700, so they're going to and price- gonna, And he's gonna escalate. And, 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 and it escalates and, and price it accordingly. So then we ask our, ourselves the question, okay, what happened to that person who, who wanted a one bedroom for under 2,000? Because we thought it was gonna be Prospect Lefferts Gardens, but now that the land has gotten too expensive. And so, you know, I get asked the question all the time, what inning is Brooklyn in? And, oh. and the answer is, you know, neighborhood by neighborhood, you know, Williamsburg is in extra innings, and, you know, Park Slope is in the ninth inning, and Bushwick is in the third inning. Can you do a hockey analogy since that's I right, the puck, over? the puck, that's right. Okay. That's right. Uh, Brooklyn Heights is in the shootout. Okay. <laughs> 
And it hasn't crossed the blue line yet. Uh, well, you can come to Coney no one Island. Plays hockey exactly. So, Coney, so. Coney Island is still in Florida. <laughs> 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 Practicing the pitch, pitchers and catchers are doing Coney Island. Um, I and, feel like I've lost control and again. So, so, no, so, so, so the issue is, no, so now we're saying, is it Coney Islands? Is it the seven line in Queens? You know, where yeah. can we find uh, the right balance between finding land that's affordable and building a project that's not going to get too ahead of itself with crazy rents in transitioning neighborhoods? So, so, so we bought land in Coney Island back in 2003 before um, the rezoning took place that rezoned a whole swath of land uh, along Surf Avenue near Stillwell Avenue. And um, south of Stillwell Avenue, uh, the area was rezoned to accommodate 4,500 units of, uh, or four and a half million square feet of residential space, and north was the amusement area. So we thought, land is getting very, very expensive. Where in New York City can you go and be on the beach and be close to a subway? Wouldn't it be great to get on the subway uh, at work in Manhattan, come home in the summertime and go for a swim in the ocean. What a great idea. The area was rezoned and then we went through a recession in 2008 and 9, and the area still hasn't quite recovered. We're going to start now. Although Rockaway is having a little bit Rock of a renaissance. Start, yes. Rockaway, Rockaway is starting because that's a little bit closer to Spain. And so, you know, <laughs> it's got that Euro feel. Uh, but. But, we're, you know... We're, I'm we're, so confused. Sorry. <laughs> Good. Good. Um, so we're, we're um, you know, we're hopeful we're about to start uh, 1,000 units there in three different, in three different um, projects. But it's going to start out with a low-income and very affordable project that we're doing with the city government. And then the second phase will have um, affordability at a higher level of income. And then the third phase will be 100% market rate. But it'll be interesting to see what the market rate yeah, well, Ruby Schroen is. is building out there and has started. Yeah. And has had good success leasing yeah. retail. And he's, right. I think he's a little further north towards Brighton Beach. But it's, you know, it has all the right bones, has all the right, right. ingredients. It has public transportation. Has You're waiting for the market to catch up to it, basically. So, yes. And right. so that, we started in 2003 and will be done maybe in 2023, so 20 years in the development of that. Incredible. Right. You know, one of the things that uh, often I think defines what you can build and from what all three of you said in terms of where you go for the next project is land, cost of land. And one of the things that I've always found amazing about this market is land, and I'm probably, you know, simplifying it, but, you know, it seemed a lot of the land is held by you know, sort of, you know, family trusts, or they're not speculators, they're long-term holder, you know, the patriarch and the family is on their deathbed and they're talking to their children, they say, whatever you do, don't sell, right? I mean, and, and so, you know, that seems to, you know, you reverse engineer, well, I can build affordable housing, I can build luxury, you know, it really defines what you can build, um, it creates the opportunity. Is it an issue where they're looking, the landowners are looking at the next subway stop, the next place out, and are leading um, maybe the market a little bit uh, in, in terms of their pricing in anticipation that you gentlemen are going to come there next? I mean, am I, is that a reasonable sort of depiction? I'll, I'll, give, you an I'll, I'll give you an example, I'll be quick about it, um, that uh, we're taking a different approach. We're actually uh, in the process of doing a deal, actually we did a deal and we're now in the process of doing another deal with someone who was a landowner 
um, actually two more deals, um, who's a landowner who's not in the real estate business. That's where their business was located, and it just so happens that the neighborhoods have changed, and they have this valuable land that uh, they would like to monetize in some fashion, but they don't want to sell. So we end up working out a deal where they either contribute the land to a new venture where we build an apartment building and we put up the equity to build and they contribute their land, okay. or we lease the land from them for 99 years. So we've taken an approach to partner with those people that had businesses. And as the neighborhoods have changed, as the markets have pushed out and established new neighborhoods, to partner with people that have owned land for real estate for uh, for their businesses for a very long time, and that's proven to be a um, a good model. Don't take that idea from me. Uh, that's, <laughs> that's a good a good point and a good way to deal with the fact that the asking prices are out of control. We've done several ground lease deals, but a lot of them are sort of uh, on hold, waiting for 421A to come back, and then they'll they'll go forward. Um, for ground leases, don't work with condos; they're very difficult right. to do. Uh, condo on a ground lease, but there there are quite a bit of quite a lot of deals that can be done on a ground lease. Now, not to make this a discussion on 421A, but is that because the landowners have built in that benefit into the value that they want for the property? I mean, then they doubled it. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so I just, that's I just think you know every seller has dollar signs in their eyes. You know right. they want to get the best price. We've done a few deals with uh, landowners where. Uh, you know, they want to capture the future value, and yet they want to cash out today, and, you know, they want it all. And so we did a deal once with um, a, pro a great project in Cobble Hill where we said, let's agree that the project was worth X. Right. And we're going to do a condo project, and, and we're, until you get X, we're working for you. So all the condo money goes to you until X. And then over X, we'll split it 50-50. And so we're incentivized to do well. We don't make a dime until you, know, you make your, you know, the first tranche of money. And that's an example of a, um, you know, of a way you can work with a seller who has you know, high expectations. So um, sort of another, just as, along the theme of this, of, of growing New York and neighborhood expansion, when you I mean, I'm, I'm assuming part of your presentation or, you know, um, your, your public position on a lot of these projects are the benefits to the neighborhood. You're dealing with the community boards and you have, you know, it's what does it bring to the neighborhood? And, um, and just a silly basic question, what does, you know, a cluster of new product bring to the neighborhood? Um, you know, I, I'm just thinking of, and this is extremely on a simplistic level, but you know, you're bringing in retail, you're bringing, you know, maybe upgrading transportation connections. What, what kinds of things do you think about in that discussion? So you start with the fact that people don't want any change. Right. <laughs> they don't want construction, they don't want development, they right. get anxious about how the neighborhood is changing. So it starts with, on a scale of one to 10, in terms of resistance to anything new, we're at a 15 already. Okay. So then you come in and you say, well, look at all these community benefits, and they roll their eyes. <laughs> and uh, you know, we just had a project um, uh, we were designated for, um, for a big, um, uh, redevelopment of a site where there's a Brooklyn Public Library in Brooklyn Heights. Okay. And not to be competitive with Charlie, but I was designated on my birthday. <laughs> wow. Not one of those day after birthdays, the day of. 
So I'll always remember when I was designated. And we thought this is gonna be the easiest community approval process in the history of New York City because we're building a new library. We're taking over a dilapidated library where the air conditioning doesn't work, where they have to close the library at 1 p.m. in the summer. And we're giving them a brand new library, a state-of-the-art library. Nobody builds new libraries anymore. And we're building affordable housing, 114 units of affordable housing. And we're building a new STEM lab for the Department of Ed uh, that's going to be available to the district um, public schools. Um, oh, and by the way, we're also building a 36-story condo. But one way to think about that is we're now returning the property to the tax rolls. And there's going to be million dollar plus of additional tax revenue, no 421A exemption. And we're going to do some retail. Um, et cetera, et cetera. And, um, you know, they threw tomatoes at me for 15 months. <laughs> wow. And, and was it just a time sort of passed in, in terms of being able to convince, or was it... So, so know, first of all, it can, be, it can be eight people. Eight people can make a lot of noise and throw mm -hmm. a lot of tomatoes and do frivolous lawsuits. So it doesn't take a lot to, you know, f flood the councilman with... Um, Slow it down. Uh, not slow it down, but just sort of make an issue of it. And the next thing you know, you're reading articles in the paper about the controversial library project. And I'm always reading that like, why is it controversial? Seven people are throwing tomatoes. That's it. <laughs> uh, um, and so, you know, and then the media loves probably, the You're going to have books on tomatoes at the library, I'm assuming, right? <laughs> um, and, you know, and then everybody's like, are there even going to be books in the library? <laughs> Who needs books? <laughs> um, and so, you know, it's very easy to oppose a project. It's very easy to get people riled up about a new project. Right. And so so there's a lot to overcome. So even though this project, you would think it was initiated by the city, the library is getting $52 million to fix eight branches throughout Brooklyn. They're getting $52 million for the site. They're getting a new library. They're getting affordable housing. It was a squeaker. It went down to the last second at the city council uh, before they voted to approve the project. So it is. So what turned out to be a slam, or you thought was going to be a slam dunk? Um, because of the, the optics were so positive for the, you felt for the community. Right, so uh, a lot of community benefits is just a, um, a modest counterbalance to the, um, to the strength of the, of the status quo and economic anxiety, neighborhood anxiety, you know, it's throughout, um, you know, it's throughout the city and the world. Right, right. Well, at Essex Crossing, fortunately, all that was done, but we have focused a lot on jobs and job training. And that's been a big thing in the community. That's what the local council member, the business improvement district, um, all of the local uh, groups were interested in jobs and job training. And what does that mean? Like when you say jobs and job training, does that mean related to development of the project or just? Development of the project, permanent jobs, and then also job training for other jobs that might be available in the neighborhood. So we have invested a lot of money in job training programs. We've partnered with 32BJ, which is a local, which is the union that provides uh, employees that work in the building. So we partnered with them to develop job training programs. We're working with the Grand Street Settlement, who is a partner of ours, in, uh, in, in, in them providing job training programs. And, but the good news was that was all baked already. Right. But we're going through a process right now where we're going through a rezoning, and I've met with the local council member, and this is uh, in a place in, in northern Manhattan, and so his first salvo was, I'd like you to bring Google up here. <laughs> really? Uh, you just you know, clicked your fingers. He said, they're a, they're, they're a tenant of yours. I said, well, now I'm a tenant of theirs. But, you know, to bring Google, no, it's a, or Facebook. Okay. Okay. All right. So, uh, Snapchat, you know, maybe. Snap. Yeah. So, now he, so now it's all about, it, it, it is a lot about job training, 
Um, it's about job creation. Um, and then it's about affordable housing. And the narrative has changed from the old the previous uh, administration to the administration today, not to get political, but um, now what we hear is we want 100% affordable. Well, it's uneconomic to develop 100% affordable, and the city doesn't have enough money to give you to justify building 100% affordable, even if, you, even if you could. And then the second thing is we want 100% affordable for very low-income people. Well, nothing will get built. And there was a project that was recently turned down um, at the last minute up in the Inwood section, it was called Broadway Sherman, it got a lot of publicity, where the developer was gonna provide 50% affordable when they only had to provide 25%, they agreed to provide 50% affordable, and it got turned down because the council member was under pressure because it wasn't 100% affordable. And it would have been a great, so what did the neighborhood got, get? They got Nothing. an existing warehouse, and that's the way it's gonna stay. So there's you know a lot of pressure that's been building in, with this administration to do things that are very difficult to actually achieve. Um, so, so what I'd love to do now in the, in the sort of flow of things is I'd like to have the audience provide some, if they have some thoughts or questions for the uh, panelists. Um, gentleman right there. start on that one. So the most exciting thing for me is development. Uh, we deal with a lot of, you know, insurance issues, legal issues, political issues, but fundamentally what we do is very tangible. There's a hole in the ground and three, four, or five years later, somebody's home. And that's very satisfying because it's very tangible. And we really like that. And for us in particular, if you look at the buildings we do, we pay a lot of attention to the skyline imprint that we leave. Mm -hmm. We spend a lot of money on facades, lighting, millions of dollars on LED lights, and that's important to us, because in, you know, generationally, when I have my grandkids pass by a building I did, I want to be proud of it. So it's something we really think about. You know, one of the, I, I, I've learned that one of the words you don't use when you're talking to the communities is transforming neighborhoods. Um, <laughs> so we like to say we are enhancing neighborhoods. So a lot of the projects that we're working on um, are neighborhood enhancement projects. So I think the thing that we're most proud of is the fact that we can have a significant impact on neighborhoods in transforming them and not transforming them. Oh, yeah. so I, I always get it wrong and I get slammed by the press, but enhancing neighborhoods and creating opportunities for people that live in those neighborhoods. Right, interesting. Um, back there. Uh, your comments have pointed out the importance of public transportation in terms of unlocking value and allowing neighborhoods to thrive. Do you think that there's political will in the city to take on the task of creating our next generation of public transportation infrastructure? I would go for it. Um, you know, that's, that's a huge challenge. For any politician to take care of a long-term infrastructure investment that's going to come to fruition after their administration is long gone is, is a great challenge, whether it's you know, dealing with climate change at the federal level or dealing with transportation issues in New York City. You, know, you see the third water tunnel you know, has been going on for decades. Right. Um, so a, a great example to me is the BQX. 
So that's something that the de Blasio administration uh, initiated. That's going to be a great way to get from Red Hook to Brownstone, Brooklyn, to Williamsburg, um, to the Queens waterfront. Because right now it's very hard to make those connections. And I think that that is a great idea. I think in a Highline-esque way, it will activate a lot of those um, arteries. And it's a long-term project. Look how long the queue took. Look how long the 7 train to 34th Street took. And um, you know why the city doesn't have a high-speed you know connection from Grand Central to the airports is like you know a notch below criminal. So you know those are the kinds of you know those are the kind of like long-term infrastructure projects that will a let the city continue to thrive and b from a development standpoint. If you had a high-speed you know I, I think one of the uh, you know the reason Coney Island hasn't taken off yet is that it's a long subway ride. If you had a you know a bullet train to get you to Coney Island, Coney Island would take off in 10 seconds. And so you know it's a um, it, it's a challenge for everybody in New York City because when you get on the four five train and it's crowded, you know what is the future of our city going to be? Right. Yeah. In looking at how the redevelopment is going on, no matter what the borough is, how do we hold on to what makes New York special by the individual? immigrants that have come and built their little businesses so that everything doesn't look like another Starbucks and an H&M and another Gucci store. How do you work with entrepreneurs that have built family businesses and keep them family and still work within the structures? Well, one of, in this new project that we're working on, uh, that's one of the things we're dealing with with the local council member, is that the first ones that will have the opportunity to rent stores, rent retail, will be the people that are in the neighborhood. So we're going to be moving a grocery operator off the site to build the building. That grocery operator will have the first opportunity to come back into the project. Can you afford it? Um, yeah. Yes, because we have to, we have, that's some of the things we will have to do. We will have to be able to provide affordable retail opportunities for people that are in the neighborhood. Right. And right there, yeah. You heard her. Uh, uh, uh. No, no. Good. Oh, no, schools. Pshaw. Yeah, so Good, Michael. Interestingly, a, a couple of things. I'm going to sort of backtrack a little on a couple of the other topics. But first of all, just broadly on affordable housing. Everybody says they want affordable housing. The administration wants it. And people generally say they want it. But when it's in their backyard, there doesn't seem to be any will to actually have it or to take the steps to get it. So that's, that's a big disconnect. And you've seen the de Blasio administration, who does really want affordable housing, um, they've failed at the city council multiple times to get it passed various places. Um, that's number one. In terms of schools, when you talk about transformative or enhancement projects <laughs> on a large scale, when there's a major change and there's thousands of units coming, there's a very comprehensive environmental review that's required. And if there's an impact, a negative adverse impact, it has to be mitigated. Very often, the only time there is actually money from the private sector to fill the gap of the public sector to fix transportation or schools is when a major project comes in and they build a new school or they build an annex to a school. So very often people will complain, hey, I don't want all these new projects because the schools are bursting at the seams. Demographically, the schools are gonna burst at the seams with or without this new development. But if this new development comes in, there's all of a sudden going to be private sector money to help alleviate that. So people should not be as scared of, of course, mm -hmm. it's very self-serving, should not be as scared of the major developments coming in if the environmental review is done right. By the way, 
Essex Crossing actually has a site for 75,000 square foot school should the community need that school. Uh, so a big project that's going to have over 1,000 units, the city has provided for um, land to build a school. Yeah, and I'll just backtrack on one thing on infrastructure. David's right. By the way, the reason we don't have a high-speed train to the airport is because Penn Station's fundamentally broken, and Penn Station isn't a throughput station. So uh, we, we submitted for the Penn Station RFP, and we spent well over $3 million on that submission. And Governor Cuomo made a, a, a big deal about the timing around that, but there are so many agencies involved. You know, the Penn Station fundamentally is controlled by Amtrak, which is owned by the federal government. And then you need the state, and then you need the city, and then you need New Jersey with the Gateway Tunnel. And the number of agencies and the complexity that's involved, you know, the Gateway Tunnel's going on for decades. Right. So it's just, it's, these are very complex problems to solve. So again, the timeline, the, the, yeah. the length of time on top of the, in the back there? All successful. You can't, you can't talk about anybody's on this uh, panel. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, over here. Look, I'll say there, there's been evolving thought about what a good development is or isn't. In the 1970s, city planning was very obsessed with sort of tower in a park yeah. type zoning. And then, you know, 20 years later, city planning said that's a disaster. We need to respect the street wall. Right. And it's all about the street wall. And I, I probably yeah. agree with yeah. the last. Contextual lab. zoning yeah. versus so, plaza. Exactly. Yeah. So I think people's opinions on what a good development is evolves. But, but your people, meaning the three of you over there, let's take a time frame of something that was done maybe 20 years ago that you look at it and say, gee, we really learned some lessons from that one. Or are you just all that good and we don't no. know? No, I'll tell you, I'll give you one, actually. Uh, you don't have to go back that far. When the city rezoned 4th Avenue in Brooklyn in 2004, they required parking, but they had a contextual zoning envelope that had a very tight height limit. So everybody put their parking garages on grade, and the, re the street experience was a bunch of louvers for garages. And people right. built 10 buildings with louvers instead of retail space. And every building that was built in that, under that zoning was not a great building, whether it was the fault of the developer, the city planners, and they fixed it. In 2010, they did a text amendment and they fixed it and everybody started putting retail in and you're really seeing the next generation of 4th Avenue buildings are much better than the prior generation. So I think it's, it's an evolving thing, but you also have constraints that need to be dealt with. So sometimes it's the developer and sometimes it's the constraints that we have to work, work with. with. Right. In Coney Island, one of the challenges we have is that they've, uh, they're changing the grade in Coney Island to have uh, water go from the, uh, from the beach side down to right. the creek. And as a consequence of that, along Mermaid Avenue, which is the block just to the uh, west of Surf Avenue, the retail starts four feet off of the sidewalk. So we're having to deal with that right now because wh who's going to lease retail that you're looking at the retail from here? Right. That's where the, that's where the slab is for your retail. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. We're going to take one more question.
Go well, they're the experts. I, I build spreadsheets and they build actual tactile buildings. Um, but I, I think to sort of, uh, I guess, convey that, it would be um, where do you, do you see, you know, the cycle development right now, do you see, uh, what do you see, say, in 18 or 19 based on what we, we're, we have right now in 17? I mean, are we looking, you know, is it one-off sort of situation? I mean, it's, a, it's, a, it's an odd, it's sort of an odd sort of general comment on supply, you know, demand, financing availability. Like, what's the state of new development over the next couple of years, the short term? I mean, I think we're finishing up a burst. Um, post-recession, there's been a lot of construction. You see cranes everywhere. And I think that's um, ending over the next 18 to 24 months. And my evidence for that is that on my fa fabulous library project, um, <laughs> it was challenging to find a construction loan because lenders are pulling back from providing loans for condos. And I thought if a fabulous project like the library project with a fabulous developer like the Hudson Companies is having trouble, that means that for subprime locations and new developers getting to the marketplace, they're going to have a tough time finding condo loans. So I think that, and, and, and land prices got high, and there's something called 421A we don't have to go into, but there's been a pause in, in new, new transactions over the last say 12 to 18 months. So a lot of the projects you're seeing now are gonna be finished up. They're gonna, there's, some, there's some stuff in the pipeline, but I think that sort of new projects that, you'll, that you're aware of going on will, will slow down over the next uh, 18 months. That'd be okay. my sense. And I'll give one piece, one piece of evidence. Um, contractors are actually answering our phone calls these days. Right. Um, so, um, and willing to come in tomorrow to talk right. about projects that are a year or two out. So I think that's somewhat that's indicative of what's going on yeah. in the market. Well, I want to thank our panelists for their candor. This is tremendously informative presentation. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this 92Y program. For more information, visit 92Y.org. This program is copyright 2017 by the 92nd Street Young Men's and Young Women's Hebrew Association.